Well, as you know, we have been doing a series on prayer and have a special emphasis on prayer this month. Our life groups are focusing on prayer. We have people meeting here uh, in the mornings, Monday through Friday, to pray at 6.30 in the morning. We're going to have a 24-hour prayer time at the end of the month. We have devotionals that are sent out each day uh, focusing on prayer. And then at the end of the month, we're going to have a celebratory service just really honoring God for how he has worked in our midst. And Janet and I enjoyed having some friends over this week as we were recounting how God had answered prayer. It was just such a glorious time to recount how God has been involved in our lives in this way. One man sized up prayer with God when he asked God, how long is a million years to you? And God said, well, a million years is like a second. And then the man said, how much is a million dollars to you? And the man said, well, a million dollars is really like a penny. And so the man smiled and he said, God, could you spare a penny? And God smiled back and said, sure, can you wait a second? (laughs) People have asked me why we're doing a series on prayer. And the simplest answer that I can give you is that I think, and I include myself in this, we need to stop making excuses for not believing God. I want to approach God like a child approaches a parent. And I want to expect God to answer. I don't want to complicate and refine my prayer life with a thousand qualifications and make my prayers irrelevant. I want to believe God to do things that only God can do. Are you with me on that? I would rather fail asking God to do things that are impossible for me than resting in what I can do on my own. My goal is that each of us could maybe pray a little bit more and pray with more faith. I'm talking about progress, not perfection. And when we speak of emphasizing prayer, I want you to know that, you know, I don't have in mind some kind of dramatic display that we're going to add to a a Sunday service, some element that I think is missing. No, shooting for something that I think is far more impactful, far more real and genuine, and that is that each of us actually pray more and and each of us actually pray with, with more faith. I mean, let's face it, Sundays we could display some uh, dramatic thing on Sunday morning, and we all know there's the potential of that being staged with no real life change with individuals, and that's not what I'm after. In fact, let's do this. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. Now, imagine that I just handed you some imaginary chalk. Let me see your chalk in your hand, all right? Imaginary chalk. I want you to just create a circle around your entire body on the floor, just like you're putting a chalk line all around yourself, all right? An imaginary circle. You got it? Now, ask God to start a revival with the person in that circle. And ask God to help the person in that circle 
to pray more often and to pray with more faith. Go before him now and do that kind of prayer, will you? Father, we don't want to explain away our inactivity, our lack of faith. We want to come to you and just take your your word as it is at face value and believe you to do great things. We get so theologically refined, Lord, that we, we put our faith in a little box that seems to have no real relationship to the life that we're living May it not be so with us. Lord, we know we're to pray in your will. We know we need to pray consistent with your name and your character. But Lord, may we not complicate this to irrelevance. Make us a people of prayer. Just to make some progress. And do in us and in this church, what only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So who am I talking to today? Well, I'm talking to the man or woman who's hardly prayed at all, who thinks that prayer is a useless endeavor. I know because I've talked to you. Uh, I don't have any pie-in-the-sky thoughts about where we're all at on a spiritual level. I'm talking today to the person who only prays at meals. I'm talking to the couple that just doesn't seem to have the time or the energy or the motivation to pray together. I'm talking to the people who've given up on prayer who feel like that God has simply turned a deaf ear to them. That's who I'm talking to today. I'm talking to the people who pray very little and wonder why God seems cold and distant. I'm talking to the man or woman whose mind is filled with stress about about money or about relationships and God seems a million miles away. I'm talking to the person who's made repeated attempts to have a meaningful prayer life, but they've never been able to establish any consistency. I think in concert we could say, Lord, teach us how to pray. You know, and it was a question that the disciples themselves had. We read about this in Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is 
his friend. Yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and you'll be, it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks you for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Of course, we've been learning in Acts as we've been going through our study about the Holy Spirit answering that prayer as well. I want you to notice what Jesus does not say in response to the question, Lord, teach us how to pray. He doesn't say, okay, now here are the theological terms I want to make sure you use when you pray. He doesn't say, okay, you need to ramp up the decibel level when you pray. He didn't say, I want you to extend your prayers to last longer. No, I want you to memorize this list of things in your prayers. Didn't say that either. He didn't say, I want you to have some public displays for the congregation to see, to to be wowed by your prayer life or others around you. That's not what he prays either. Rather, what Jesus does, he gets to the heart. He moves beyond words. He's not just asking them to repeat some words. He's saying, this is the kind of, these are the principles that I want you to to have in your head and heart, and gives them a model. Prayer is more than just saying the right words. Here's a prayer. This person said, God, I trust in you. I lay myself in your hands. Allow me to glorify you in every possible way. Purify my heart and clean it from all earthly matters. And if God supports you, no one will be able to defeat you. You know where that came from? Mohammed Atta, the lead terrorist from the 9-11 attack. Sounded good. We need more than just words. More than just getting from God something, prayer means much more than that. It means aligning our hearts and minds with an almighty God. Samuel Chadwick said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Lord, teach us to pray. Mm. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples saw Christ pray at his baptism. 
Christ began his ministry with a 40-day fast and prayed in the wilderness. He prayed before he chose the 12. When the crowds grew bigger, Jesus prayed. The disciples would see him daily in the morning walk away from the masses, from the busyness of life, and, and spend time praying in a quiet place. At his transfiguration, Jesus prayed. Right up to his very last breath, Jesus uttered words to his heavenly Father. And his whole life was a monument for prayer. And just think of it, Jesus had a need for dependence upon the Father in prayer. Disciples had spent months looking at him intently, almost like a scientist looks at a, in a microscope, and they're, they're, they're looking at him, observing, peering behind trees and rocks as he's speaking and as he daily does his life. And what do they notice? They notice a man who prays all the time. And they finally just had to ask him, Lord, can you teach us this? How do you pray? We best learn to pray from those around us who actually pray, right? And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. See, God was too lofty and distant to be addressed as Father, in the religionists of that day. I mean, the Jews would not use such intimate phraseology. It, it, it appeared to be too chummy with a Jehovah God to say, Abba, Papa, Father. It's too much. But Jesus wants his disciples to address God with this term of endearments. Now, it's... It's likely that for some of us, when we say father, there's actually pain involved in that. Maybe your memories aren't so good of your earthly father. But, but in reality and even objectively, we can see our heavenly father as loving us and having our best in mind, knowing that he offered up his son on a cross to be tortured on our behalf. He proved his love to us. Objectively, and is wanting us to now have this impact our very hearts, to feel it in our bones that there's a God who loves us. In fact, Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him, and a few verses later he says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. When Paul wanted prayer for himself, he wanted the love of God to overflow from the hearts of people because he knew when they prayed that way, it was great motivation for prayer. 
And that's perhaps the greatest motivator for prayer. It's not to be guilted into prayer. Haven't we all felt the shame of that? None of us feel like our prayer is where it should be. The motivation is not to memorize the 10 top points of prayer, but rather it's to have our hearts overflowing with the love of God. We know this is a God who yearns for our communion. We can go to him knowing that it's safe with this God. He'll hear us. He, he actually delights in us. He wants to hear us. On our fridge at our house, on the, on the side of it, is various pieces of artwork from our grandchildren. And it was also the case when our own children were living in the house. Now, the display is not there because the artwork is perfectly proportioned and contoured with, you know, balanced colors and nuanced shading. And those of you that are artists would probably look at the pictures and say, wow, that, you know, these people need some work. (laughs) The art is there because the children are loved. And displaying their work causes Janet and I, reminds Janet and I to delight in those children. And each of those is a keepsake. And I think it's the same with our Heavenly Father. I I, I think that if God had a refrigerator, your prayers would be on the side of it. You know why? Because he delights in you. He loves you. He loves to hear your requests. He delights in your prayers, not because they have perfect theological phrasing, but because he loves the communion with his children. You know, when Janet and I started dating, back when Hoover was president, um, our dates started late because neither of us got off work until about 9 or 9.30, and we would both be just dog-tired, but Love didn't care that we were tired. We still wanted to get together and to, and to fellowship together because we wanted to see each other. When we pray and we call out to God and we say, Papa, Father, his love draws us. The communion draws us. We yearn to draw near to him knowing his arms are open for our requests. Father, hear our prayers. Love you. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means set apart. There is no one like God. He is completely unique When Paul writes, hallowed be your name, he means that that God's whole character, his whole person is set apart. His name is essentially the sum of all of his characteristics and attributes, and they are completely unique to God. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and in your hand is there not power and might? so that no one is able to withstand you. God is revealed in the person of Christ. He is revealed in the pages of Scripture. He is not the same God as Buddhism 
or Hinduism. We see something completely unique to the God of Scripture. God is both a father and he is hallowed. As a father, he is personal and imminent or or close by, accessible, available. And at the same time, he is hallowed. He is transcendent. He is separate from humanity. There's no one like our God. He's unlike the pantheistic gods of the East, where God is impersonal and distant. And God is unlike, frankly, much of American religion that fosters a kind of, you know, friendly grandpa without any holiness, who just accepts and tolerates any behavior or thinking. And so the God of the Bible is both, both close in relationship, imminent, but he's also transcendent, beyond finite man. See, how we pray reveals what we think about God. God said to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Hallowed be his name, now and forevermore in his church. Sorry, that's not the end. We got more to go. Your kingdom come, your kingdom come. By praying for the kingdom, we come and pray for the rule of God to be in our hearts and on the earth. We drew that circle around ourselves. We recognize that we invite God to rule within that circle. He rules in our relationships. He rules over our money. He rules over our jobs. He rules in our family and our homes. He rules in every aspect of our lives. He indeed is Lord. May his kingdom be manifested in our lives. Your kingdom come. We give up our right, our way for the will of the creator. Our will submits to his. We want to see Jesus rule on the earth. And we want it to begin in us. And notice that his prayer puts God's interests first. It's his name, his kingdom, his will is to be primary. See, prayer isn't so much trying to get something from God, although it includes petitions. I think it's primarily a way for God to accomplish something through us for his will to be done. Yeah, I meet up with a lot of people who pray, and they pray about some funny things. You know, people who pray to have God help them while they're having an affair or help in this relationship while they're having premarital sex. Or help me with this relationship of a person who they refuse to forgive. See, prayer is not a tool to sanctify our behavior. Prayer is a means for our hearts and our lives to come under the authority and the will of God and request the same in others. 
It's not uncommon that when I meet with the Lord and I'm praying maybe about a particular conflict or an issue, you know, I may have, you know, the issue to be solved or I may have, you know, somebody that I'm asking God to move in and there's a, there's a conflict with that person and that, that, that God is like, you know, shining a light on my heart. And I'll be writing in the journal, writing out the prayers, writing out the issues, and it's like God often just stops me and says, hey, wait a minute, short. And he always addresses me by my last name. He says, wait a minute. I, I need you to look at this area in your life. I want you to look at this attitude, this behavior. I mean, I, I, I go into it wanting God to do this over here, and yet he's moving in my heart to, to work in me. And that's often the way it is with prayer, is that God is using that communion to make adjustments with us. And maybe that's why prayer is often avoided. Just like we can sometimes, if things are not going well in marriage, we, we avoid talking openly because it reveals too much. And it's often why prayer is avoided because we're afraid about what we're going to see. We're afraid about how God may shine a light, but, but it's in that that there's abundance of living. It's in that that there's great joy in coming before God and enjoying that communion. Give us each day our daily bread. People in Jesus' day normally would receive pay every day. So they understood this to mean daily provision was coming from the hand of God. It's no different today regardless of who signs your paycheck or how often your paycheck comes, God is the one who provides. You say, wait a minute. God is not the one doing the welding. It's me doing the welding. God is not the one who made the sale. I'm the one that made the sale. God is not the one teaching. I'm the one in the classroom leading the class. Huh. Really? Who gave you those skills? Who gave you the very breath that you can breathe? God moves the hearts of kings. You think he's not also moving in you and making it so that you can earn a living? James says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, there's a, there's a healthy dose of God's sovereignty in our lives. And we start feeling a little proud of ourselves, thinking, look what I've done over here. You know, me, me, me. And God is reminding us that when we're praying, when we come to him daily for our needs, it's, it's his provision. You know what that does? That, that, that produces a heart of, of gratitude, does it not? We anticipate his provision for today, for tomorrow. We're thankful. You know, the, the BBC reported several years ago about a massive study that was done whereby patients were admitted to hospitals with heart trouble, that they fared better when they were prayed for than patients who were not prayed for. 
Now, none of those that were involved were told that people were engaging in intercessory prayer for them on their behalf. On an average, about 500 patients prayed for those patients had fewer complications during their stay in the hospital. And using a standard coronary care scoring system, patients that had prayer scored higher than patients without. The research team actually based out of Kansas City admitted, this is funny, there's no rational explanation as to why there's the difference. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. At first glance, it almost seems like an odd thing. We're talking about, Lord, teach us to pray. And now you're getting off in the weeds on forgiveness. Seems rather unrelated, doesn't it? Not so much. Jesus wants us to pray for our sins to be forgiven. In other words, we're to, we're to do business with God and coming to him openly and humbly about our own state, our own sin. And by doing so, then we position ourselves to forgive others. And we're then to pray that we're not to be led into temptation. And if we keep the same theme, we could say that the temptation is related to unforgiveness. The point is, is that when we refuse to forgive, we are led down a path of many other sins. Refusing to forgive is like a drunk walking into a bar and expecting not to be unscathed. Unforgiveness is the breeding ground for emotional, spiritual, and even physical unhealthiness and sin. The apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church about a man who had committed grievous immorality. And God wrote the Corinthian church to confront that. And they did, and the man repented. And then he's praying for them to forgive the man. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive what I have what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. You have sex with a family member, that's a bad thing, but this man's repented, we forgive him. And if we don't, we invite temptation. We invite Satan to have a heyday on us and in us when we don't forgive. Our relationships sour, our, our, our hearts harden, our service to Christ weakens. We could eventually have lives that are ruined by unforgiveness. And we see it. People walking around with unforgiveness, identifying people by the way that they have hurt them in the past. Listen, prayer is our primary vehicle for fellowship with God. And we'd be hard-pressed to find something that hinders our fellowship with God more than unforgiveness. 
And I think Jesus is giving us a clue as to why we have such a hard time forgiving others. It's why he asks us to pray, forgive us our sins. He starts with that, forgive us our sins. In other words, if we don't understand the gravity of our own sin, the depth of God's grace in forgiving us, we're going to have a hard time forgiving others. It's like we've turned off the spigot on our own life, and then we're wondering why we're not forgiving others. See, I don't think any person can see their own sin and the the grace of God clearly and then walk with unforgiveness toward others. I mean, it's incomprehensible to see our arrogance and our pride and our, our lust and our greediness and our bondage and then to hold out on others. We, we see, we're humbled before God. It's like, oh, God, I see my sin. I see how, how I have offended you. And then when somebody hurts us, you know, we, we come to that with great understanding. You know, I, I, I get that. When we forgive We see people made in the image of God. And we're not defining them by their offense against us. You see, uh, there are people that as soon as their names or their faces are uh, recalled in our heads, the first thing we think of is what they said, what they did to hurt us. Forgiveness means I'm choosing not to retaliate. I can acknowledge the hurt, but I'm looking to God to bring healing. I'm not holding out for this person to say I'm sorry before I forgive. Now, you may need that for reconciliation, but I'm talking about forgiveness. Reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness takes one. And forgiveness is for myself, my own heart. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. I can't remember when I felt like forgiving. Because when you're hurt, you don't automatically feel like forgiving somebody. You choose to forgive. We rarely feel like forgiving. It's a process of repeated Choices, repeated decisions to value and love that person and not seek vengeance. And by the way, I don't think forgiveness is forgetting. We still have memories hardwired in our brains, but choosing to forgive even when that offense is remembered. Choosing to love, choosing to let the person off the hook. Again, different than reconciliation. One of the many reasons many of us don't feel like praying is perhaps because we are holding on to unforgiveness and the prospect of close communion with God and close communion with other people, too revealing, too threatening. I mean, invariably, within every marital conflict... Did not come down to where do we offload the offenses? Maybe my spouse hasn't responded the way I wanted. You know, I wanted them to come and, you know, pet me. 
I want him to come and, you know, come over here and, oh, I'm sorry, honey. I shouldn't have said that. And, you know, we don't get what we expected. And so we hold out forgiveness. And, of course, we like to do the silent treatment as well, having them be the amazing Kreskin to figure out what's in our heart before we tell them and getting upset if they don't know or understand. But it's forgiveness. I choose the relationship over my offenses. I choose to value this person more than retaliation. See, prayer is an invitation for sweet communion with God. And it positions our hearts to enjoy that communion. And unforgiveness comes and invades that. It corrupts that. And so when we pray, it, it, it makes perfect sense that we pray for our sins to be forgiven. And for us to forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. That makes perfect sense. Let us position our hearts to enjoy sweet communion with God as we pray.